0: Taking Stock
1: with Mandy Johnston
0: Thanks to Skillnet Ireland driving business success through innovative training and upskilling
2: This is News Talk
1: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests and great conversations and coming up on today's show, as the dust settles on last week's local elections in Northern Ireland, we're going to be taking a look at the real figures and what they mean for the re-establishment of the Assembly. I'm going to be joined by Tommy Gorman, who's a former RTE Northern Ireland editor, and he now writes about politics north and south of the border for the currency. Later on in the programme, I'll be talking about San Francisco. It's facing a crisis of homelessness and also drug abuse and crime, all of which are threatening the city's future. Tabby Kinder leads the Financial Times coverage across the West Coast in the US and she's going to be here to talk us through the latest developments in a city that seems to be at breaking point. And finally, let's get digital. The European Central Bank will be 25 years old next week and it's pushing ahead with the development of an electronic currency, even as politicians question its very purpose. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times will be here to decipher what it means for us as consumers. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So let's start with that issue of a digital euro that the European Central Bank are looking at at the moment. It's already been causing problems on the streets of Amsterdam earlier this year. It's seen protests over it uh, on the basis that it could lead to infringements on people's freedoms and privacy. But what is a digital euro and do we even need it? We're joined now by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks, Mandy. Now, Cliff, next week, the ECB will be 25 years old. You and I were around when it was it was first starting off. But now it's come up with this digital euro. What exactly is a digital euro? What are they proposing?
3: They're proposing that uh, the ECB would offer digital money, would issue digital money directly to consumers. Uh, now, I suppose this, this concept is a little... Is a little tricky because people feel they already have digital money they pay with their cards they pay we all pay with our cards we all pay with our phones uh, and so on uh, through services provided by our banks uh, what the ecb is now suggesting and other central banks around the world are, are looking at this as well is that we would have digital money directly issued by the european central bank and, and backed by the central bank uh, which would mean we would have a digital wallet uh, which could be used to pay for goods and services directly could be used to pay online and would have if you like the the guaranteed backing of the European Central Bank what i suppose the ECB has to persuade consumers is that there is some value in this beyond losing using you know things cards services uh, issued by their existing bank or by uh, by organisations such as Revolut or whatever other uh, organisations pe- people use to pay their bills these days. And I think they still probably have, have a bit of a way to go in, in, in doing that.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the big challenge because there's already a great deal of inertia when it comes to changing anything we do with banking. But like, how did they convince them? What are the benefits of doing it this way? And And how exactly would people then use it?
3: People would use it in the way that uh, they would use their existing, you know, existing bank accounts, if you like. Uh, So likely that people would have a digital wallet uh, on their phone and that it would contain uh, digital euros. Perhaps you might be paid in digital euros uh, as, as, as the system develops we've yet to see I suppose a full outlining from the central bank on how exactly it would work but the pitch would be that this is you know 100 percent safe is 100 percent backed uh, by the by the European central bank uh, and that um, you know perhaps unlike services that might be offered by tech companies or whatever uh, that there isn't kind of a commercial angle to this if you like Mm. uh, and that that people can feel safe uh, using these kind of mechanisms and and, you know not face the risk that some service they are using by provided by a tech company or some other private sector provider Mm. and might run into trouble at some stage and maybe their money mightn't be safe or their data mightn't be safe or whatever. So that's the pitch as I say you know some people have presented this Uh, as a solution looking for a problem (laughs) so i do think uh, the public need to be you know do need to be persuaded that this is something worth worth having and uh, worth using and that it offers demonstrable advantages over uh, their existing means of payment from the european central bank point of view and from the political point of view there is perhaps a fear that people would start to use these services provided by uh you know by tech companies, for example, uh, although efforts in that sphere to provide, uh, you know, digital currencies haven't haven't really gone very far so far. So, um, as I say, still a job of persuasion to do. I think with the public about about using this.
1: Mm. Let's explore a little bit more about the reasons why they're moving towards this. Um are they a little bit behind the curve uh, when 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 you're talking there about they're trying to ward off the threat of private companies sort of taking control of the payments people are kind of doing this type of thing already. So um are they a bit are they a bit slow to get to this in your view?
3: Yeah, I mean they probably are. All right. Central banks in general, I suppose, tend to be tend to be cautious institutions mm. but there are uh you know a large number now looking at this some experimental projects going on around the world the fed are, are looking at it uh, most of the main central banks are looking at it and there is you know um paragraph might be too strong a word but certainly central banks like the ecb are trying to underpin their position uh, as the as the you know the key provider of currency, mm. for example, the ECB would be wary that other central banks might issue currencies that might come into use in the euro area uh, in time uh, and kind of undercut their position. So it, it is, I suppose, trying to respond to the way people are using money these days, to the concerns they have, mm. and trying to come up with it with, with with a new product which will which will keep the ECB in the driving seat in the years to come.
1: And before we move on to the issues that might uh, be causing these type of protests that we've seen in Amsterdam earlier in the year, um, just um, a little bit more then about where the providers that we're now using would go. So in this scenario where there's an actual currency rather than um, just a currency that's supported through um, a digital exchange, let's just say, um, you, you have a currency that's issued by the bank, What is the role of the commercial banks that we use now in this? Would they still be the first providers of it? Would we still have banks like AIB and Bank of Ireland? Would we still use them? It's just a different way that they get the currency or would we be dealing directly with central banks?
3: Um, There would be an element of dealing directly with central banks now. The ECB has gone, kind of sought to calm nerves in in the banking system. Uh, that they would be I suppose disintermediated in the whole process mm. and they've referred to the role of uh, regulated financial intermediaries you know who would be likely to offer this service if you like alongside their existing services so you would access digital euro your digital euro wallet via your AIB and via your Bank of Ireland or, or permanent TSB or whatever institution uh, that you bank with and um, now nonetheless the banks will be concerned about being cut out to some extent uh, from people's day-to-day transactions of, about the implications of that for their relationship with consumers and also for their for their profit margins. Mm. Um, so certainly um, trying to uh, allay fears among the banks is, 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 is a big issue. Uh, I mean, one of the things that the ECB has said is that they aren't going to compete with banks for saving products um, that your savings account will still be with your bank, uh, and that you'll be able then to stick to switch your savings into your digital euro, if you so wish, and, and and use it that way. That's the pitch. I mean, a lot of the practicalities of this are still to be, are still to be ironed out and worked out. And there certainly is fear in the, some fear in the financial sector that they might lose fees here and that they might lose elements of their relationship. With ordinary customers, uh, which is obviously the, the bedrock on which they build
1: mm, sales
3: I, of products which they make more money.
1: Yeah, the banking lobby has always been fairly aggressive and very determined. Yeah. I can see huge issues here um, f- from, from that perspective. But if you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about a potential digital euro. Cliff, there are the big issues around this um, and privacy being the primary one. Can you just talk us through the concerns that people might have about uh, a digital currency of this nature?
3: Yeah, I guess there's there's two really. One is that the ECB might try in some way to control how people spend money uh, or limit how people spend money. That this might be in some way be programmable money as it's called. Now the ECB has, has gone out of its way to to, to allay those fears and, and say that that won't be the case. And um, then there's the issue of access to personal data. And this this is a kind of a tricky one because there are various anti-money laundering uh, rules and rules on the financing of terrorism and fighting tax evasion and ensuring sanctions such as those currently uh, being applied on Russia are, are, are complied with. Uh, and there are questions then about, you know, how does the enforcement of those rules uh, sit along with people's privacy concerns in relation to information that the ecb would have because obviously information about how how people spend money is very powerful i, I guess that, 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 that the spin from the ecb so far is that they will only have access to information or the authorities will only have access you know in relation to precisely how to how to enforce kind of those anti-terrorism and anti-money laundering rules but that has raised fears uh particularly in germany where where, where this privacy issue was really big mm and of course germany is a key player in the euro so i think this is going to be a big issue uh, in terms of how uh, how this all plays out and getting all the countries on board because we we still have a way to go on this one absolutely I, I, another another kind of clunky issue uh, is how this would work for what are called offline payments so if i want to if i'm going to lunch with you and i want to you pay the bill and i want to give you 30 euro or whatever it is um to to, to pay you back for that and um, how is that going to work it does appear that the system is going to allow some of these what are called offline payments between individuals and of course these are these are the very things that make some of the products on offer on the market at the moment very attractive mm. but again how, what the limits are going to be set on that uh, and how that is controlled in terms of you know not people paying for uh, for drugs or getting involved in kind of larger cash transactions mm. uh, is an, is something else that's going to have to be worked out. I think it was going to be another very controversial area as this all plays out.
1: Yeah, that, that issue of control that you mentioned there and programmable money, I suppose the fear is that if we got into um, an economic downturn situation where things were critical like they were in 2008-2009 that the governments then themselves could start what rationing money or controlling money in the same way they're now sort of they can ration energy or something like that that, that we, sure. we then just uh, are at the mercy of, of governments who then try to control money and they know all your data so that, that'll be a huge hurdle for them won't it?
3: Yeah, it will. Uh, or you, you know, even on a more prosaic level, that they'll kind of the will set limits and say you can only spend x thousand digital euro, or only transfer x thousand at a particular time, mm. or there may be limits on who you can pay to and who you can't pay to. Um so yeah, sure, they are they are going to be really, really tricky and thorny issues now. I suppose the central bank will argue that you know there's already limits in the way we can use our bank accounts and the various cards and. Uh, payment services that we have at the moment but there's no doubt that the idea so i suppose a big brother uh governments central banks uh states having control of of data uh and having control of information does does i think bring this to another level Absolutely. and this is going to be uh this is going to be i think the hot issue in term- as this whole debate moves on now in the, over the next year or so
1: yeah, maybe finally, Cliff. Just on this one, the instability issue um, and the exposure to maybe quick runs. If there was a digital currency of this nature, presumably one of the pluses is also one of the minuses, where a run on a bank could 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 happen instantaneously, almost if it's electronic currency.
3: Sure, I, I think I suppose one of the um, one of the attractions of the digital euro is that it. It would, it would remove that risk to an extent because this money is, is fully backed by the ECB, if you like. This is a central bank project. It may be provided to us by our banks uh, and a lot of savings may remain in those banks. And as you say, there are issues now uh, that we see in America that if there is a run on a bank... Uh, it can spread in like wildfire with mm. uh, through WhatsApp or whatever. But one of the attractions of having some of your money in your digital euro wallet would be that that would be underwritten and, and fully guaranteed by the ECB, I suppose. As with some of the pro- problems we've seen in, in tech companies trying to roll out uh, roll out services, and also some of the issues we've seen in the crypto market over the last few years, with you know huge swings in value of of cryptocurrencies uh, that some people have been have have been. Uh, their savings in that the ecb will, will at least be able to say well look this is this is rock solid uh this money yeah. is 100 percent guaranteed by the ecb and while we might feel i suppose that a lot of the bank products we use at the moment effectively have the same guarantee i suppose they don't really because they are they're being provided to us by the bank uh by the commercial bank this would be provided by the european central bank mm. uh, so it would be it would be rock solid but i think nonetheless <laughs> they still have to persuade us that this is going to this is going to be slick enough and easy enough to use and it's going to offer advantages in terms of use and ease of use over the vast number of products that are available at the moment yeah. in the market otherwise it it may be a project which which doesn't end up going very
1: far. Yeah, introducing any new currency, even when it's tangible, is is difficult and a long project. But th- this one is certainly a new set of problems. Just very finally, Cliff, can I ask you? You were here a couple of weeks ago, musing about how the government might spend its largesse. Are so you surprised that the discussions on budget twenty twenty four have started in the month of May?
3: They start earlier every year, Matthew, so I guess nothing surprises me at this stage. All right, okay. But uh, yeah, it was interesting to see that article by the three Fine Gael junior ministers. And, you know, as I wrote in a piece today, the article was, was 99% kind of fairly harmless and kind of recanting government policy. I think the bit that has caused the furore and, and caught attention and caused a particular row is this idea that middle income earners should be given uh, tax breaks of a thousand euro in the budget. Mm. Um, you know, we, we may end up in a situation not a million miles from there uh, come budget day because remember that uh, middle earners to get about a little over 800 euro from last year's budget. Yes. And it's hard to see this one being any less generous, but nonetheless. I guess coming out before the summer economic statement and the parameters of the budget have been outlined uh, has has caused a bit of uh, ructions in uh, in politics and, and led Fianna Fáil, and government, shall I say, and led Fianna Fáil to come out and say uh, the budgetary process is being undermined now. Yeah, I somebody. People meant, don't have much, much, uh, much concern with the budgetary process, really. But uh, no, this so is going to be some
1: heavy, be somebody hard. remarked to me today they're rowing about something that's going to happen anyway. But I'm sure there's miles to go on this one. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Up next, Sinn Féin's big election win in Northern Ireland brings huge responsibilities for them, but it also places huge pressure on the DUP. Tommy Gorman is writing about it in this week's Currency and he joins us after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks, Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now we're going to turn to Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin is now the biggest party in both Stormont and in Northern Ireland's 11 local councils. Is it a moment of historic change? Well, here to talk us through last week's results and what he thinks it is all about. I'm joined now by Tommy Gorman, former RTE Northern Ireland editor, who now writes about politics north and south for the currency. Tommy, you're very welcome to Taking Stock.
2: Thank you, Mandy.
1: Now, Tommy, 800-odd candidates for 462 seats on 11 local councils. What did the results tell us about politics in Northern Ireland in May of 2023? What's the landscape like?
2: Well, I think we should also be talking about politics north and south because I think they're interrelated. And I think that's one of the significant aspects of what's been happening north of the border in recent times. But just to concentrate on what happened last week, you had Sinn Féin confirming that it is now the largest party of local government as well as the largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And this is happening at a time when Sinn Féin, after the 2020 general election down south, was confirmed as the largest party in the republic. So on both sides of the border, Sinn Féin is now the largest party. I think what was significant about what was achieved last week was the manner in which it was done. You have to take account of the fact that a year ago, Michelle O'Neill should have been named the first minister of Northern Ireland as Sinn Féin had been returned as the largest party. But the DUP, for its own reasons, decided it would not participate in a devolved administration for the moment. And what Michelle O'Neill did in the past 12 months was fascinating because she worked on brand Michelle she also worked on brand Sinn Féin. And what she managed to achieve was she widened the appeal of Sinn Féin beyond its support base. It ended up with 30.9% of the first preference vote in the Northern Ireland local elections, making it the largest party. And in some respects, that was the result of a charm offensive. And I would not be at all surprised if Mary Lou Macdonald took note of that strategy, was aware of what was being done. And I think it's quite possible, Mandy, that you could see similar tactics rolled out by Sinn Féin as it approaches the next general election south of the border.
1: Mm. They're quite an interesting double act, aren't they? As you say, their tactics are very different, uh, but they're feeding off each other in terms of success.
2: Yeah, they're fascinating, Uh, And they're such an important part of, say, the Sinn Féin story. Remember, for years, it was driven by the northern axis of Adams and McGuinness. One from Derry, one from Belfast, both with an IRA past. Here you have Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou MacDonald. One from Dublin, one from County Tyrone. No history of IRA activity. Two women replacing two men. And when you think about it, in 1986, when Adams and McGuinness came to a Sinn Féin gathering in Dublin, they were looking to say to the party, we should cease our policy of abstentionism in Dáil Éireann, two Northerners urging a change in policy south of the border. Mm -hmm. How different it is now that you have O'Neill and MacDonald driving Sinn Féin policy. And as you say, One feeding off the other. Like, for instance, it helped Sinn Féin up north that the party was the largest party in the south. Now Mary Lou MacDonald can look to Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland and say, we are preparing to be a party of government. Mm. And interestingly, Mandy, the next part, the hardest one, is going to be for Michelle O'Neill to prove she can actually govern. As First Minister, Sinn Féin person in that role for the first time, and interestingly too, in the, McDe- uh, the O'Neill Macdonald axis, O'Neill is going to be the one who's first tested.
1: Mm. Yeah, as you say, they're they're still campaigning. Both of them have yet to govern, and Michelle O'Neill likely to be up first. What do you think um is 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 going to drive that dynamic for her to get her actually into government? Let's turn to the DUP really for a second to see um a lot of pressure coming on them from a lot of politicians in the south about why they can't just return to to the assembly. What what's their position post the the elections last week?
2: Well, a lot of say, the DUP anxiety about going back into government was looking over their shoulder to the right, wondering was this great threat from Jim Allister of the TUV going to materialise. So that hasn't happened. Geoffrey uh, Donaldson has been a year out of power sharing. So is he going to continue with that policy indefinitely? They don't have European elections because they're no longer members of the European Union. So the next election they'll face could be as late as early 2025, the next British general election. But it would be a pretty dangerous tactic to go into those elections as the party that kept devolved government closed in Northern Ireland for over two years. Mm. So all the pressure now is on Geoffrey Donaldson to go back into government. But his biggest challenge, and it's a shared one with the other parties, including Sinn Féin, is having the resources and the know-how to, government, to govern. As things stand, they face a huge build-up of problems. Civil servants looking for pay increases, big decisions about reform of the health service, the longest waiting list of any region in the United Kingdom, hospital waiting lists. So they are going to need a significant check from the British government uh, to facilitate a return to power sharing. And Sinn Féin would, would be, I suppose, working off the same page in that regard. Mm. So I think the next few months, Mandy, will be about negotiations to provide the funds to reflow power sharing.
1: And do you think that that's what the UK government can do to urge them into, back into government? Is that all they're waiting for? Or is well, there more?
2: No, they're, they're, they're looking for some tweaks, of course, uh, as well, uh, to the Windsor framework. Uh, but I think the pressure from the business sector in Northern Ireland is such that um, those tweaks can be sought and implemented in the against the backdrop of a power-sharing administration doing its work. Mm. So I think the funding uh, is the more immediate need for the DUP, and I think that's something that the British government can deliver. I mm. think you also have to take into account that Rishi Sunak, one of these months, is going to look to make a, a visit to the United States, a high profile one. And I think he'd like to be bringing some positive news to Joe Biden in relation to the resumption of power sharing. But if that happens, and if it well happens, Mandy, well, then Michelle O'Neill is going to be the person who's going to be centre stage as First Minister. And Sinn Fein, the brand, is going to be tested as a party of government in Northern Ireland before you have a, an election campaign for the
1: mm, mm. And certainly Biden is very crucial in the relationship between uh, Rishi Sunak and trying to, I suppose, repair all of the difficulties that they've had over the Northern Ireland protocol. So they would want to go there with something good to offer, as you say. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Tommy Gorman, former Northern Ireland editor of RTE, who now writes about politics north and south for the currency. Tommy, just going back to nationalism for a moment and Michelle O'Neill is a very interesting character I'm just trying to assess whether she is being more successful by design or default and whether nationalism is actually growing are there more nationalists or did Sinn Féin just grow their vote by eating the lunch of others like the SDLP
2: Well I think if, if you look back on her background you know her father was working in the building trade travelled south for work. She was actually born in Formoy County, Cork. The family moved back up north again. Her father had been an IRA prisoner. He was a local councillor. She took that seat. Martin McGuinness was the person who identified uh, her potential. And after she was elected uh, an Assembly Member in 2007, he had her Minister for Agriculture in 2011. McGuinness identified her as his successor uh, to take over the party leadership. So, from being a person about whom there was little interest south of the border and little known about her, uh, she's growing in terms of presence and in terms of importance. Uh, and in some respects, she is going to be the one who tests their capacity uh, as a party of your government. But she's also becoming more and more important in that Macdonald-Michelle axis. You'll see more and more of them together, um, and I think. Even if Sinn Féin wanted to try and stop things now, I think the momentum is such that the challenge of government is going to arrive regardless, Mandy. Mm. Uh, And Michelle O'Neill is going to be the person in the frame. Uh, And despite her potential, she is unproven, just as as are Sinn Féin in the role of government south and north. So it's going to be very interesting in terms of the party's growth as to how she steps up to the challenge.
1: Mm. And Tommy, what about the SDLP after these results? Um, where do they go from here?
2: Well, you're quite right when you talk about reading somebody else's lunch. Like Sinn Féin uh, have come to centre stage and come to this position of influence using a lot of, say, the John Hume vision, uh, building on uh, his ideas, um, the IRA leaving the stage uh, Sinn Féin becoming a political machine. The one I'll be interested to watch, Mandy, will be the next Westminster elections. Because when you think about it, Sinn Féin are now the largest party of local government. They're the largest party in the Assembly. But the SDLP still has two very competent members in Westminster, uh, Colin Eastwood uh, and Claire Hanna. Mm. And Sinn Féin is an abstentionist party it has seven members who don't take their seats. So I think if Sinn Féin were to be able to oust the SDLP uh, in the next Westminster elections and to take uh, nine nationalist seats and become the largest party in Westminster, the DUP currently have eight, and you have Stephen Farry of the Alliance Party. Well, I think if that scenario evolved, It would be very, very grim for the SDLP. I think if the SDLP is the next stand the SDLP will make against Sinn Féin will be at Westminster level. And if they can't hold seats against a party of abstentionists, well, that that will be a very, very bleak outcome for them. So that's the one to watch.
1: And where would that leave Sinn Féin if they were the party holding most of the seats in Westminster from Northern Ireland?
2: I don't think there's any pressure within uh, the Sinn Féin movement to change their abstentionist policy. I think they're quite comfortable with it. I think people return and have consistently returned Sinn Féin members to Westminster knowing that's the case. I don't think there's anyone saying you could become strategically very important uh, in the event of a hung parliament at Westminster. I think Sinn Féin has enough to be doing on the island of Ireland North and South. So I, I don't think you'll see any material change in their attitude to Westminster. they remain abstentionists. Um, But the more important dynamic will be north of the border first, and then as they prepare for the southern election. And watch to see if in the next few months you see some softening of the tone to become a more catch-all party. Sinn Féin in the south, as has happened in the north, because in their role as the party of opposition... Often Sinn Féin have to appear to be strident, haranguing the government at every turn. But the Michelle O'Neill's charm approach has certainly worked for it north of the border. And I'd be interested to see if you see some softening at the edges of Sinn Féin members in the Republic.
1: Mm, There's certainly the strident approach is definitely working for them here though because they're just constantly going up in the opinion polls. There's been absolutely no tiring of that rhetoric yet.
2: I think one other point that's worth making, Mandy, is it's probably in Mary Lou MacDonald's interests that power sharing would be restored in Northern Ireland because, I suppose, that removes the danger of the party being accused of not doing enough to get back into government Mm. in the North. Uh, And if they can address that, provided it doesn't prove to be an impossibly difficult challenge, then I think it will work into Sinn Féin's agenda. So I think that's why you'll see her probably putting pressure uh, on, say, the government ministers and on the Taoiseach uh, to do what he can with the British. I think there's one one other point worth making. In the past, um, the main Sinn Féin contact from a northern perspective with the government of the South has been through um, the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Like, say, for instance when the push was on to restore Stormont on the watch of Simon Coveney um, uh, and the British government. Well, the go-to person for Sinn Féin was Coveney, mm. so Michelle O'Neill was able to work through him. But with Mihal Martin in that role, former Taoiseach, Fianna Fáil leader, and Fianna Fáil likely to come under a pressure uh, as an election date nears in the Republic, I don't think that you're going to see any huge ongoing regular warmth between Hall Martin and Michelle O'Neill, as you had in the case of, say, Simon Coveney and Michelle O'Neill.
1: Well, we look out for the regular warmth somewhere. Uh, But for now, Tommy, thank you so much for taking the time to give us your valuable insights. That was former RTE Northern Ireland editor who now writes for The Currency. Tommy, thank you so much for being with us today. You're listening to Taking Stock here on Newstalk. Coming up, the streets of San Francisco are facing huge difficulties. Tabby Kinder of the Financial Times covers the west coast of America and she's going to be here to tell us what's happening in the city as it teeters on the brink. Join us for all that after this break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm joined now by Tabby Kinder from the Financial Times. She's based in the West Coast of America. Tabby and her colleague George Hammond wrote a very, very arresting piece recently about the city of San Francisco. It's talking about the myriad of complex problems that the city is struggling to deal with right now. Tabby, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks, Mandy. Hi. Now I should also mention uh, your colleague Justin Metz, who provided the illustrations on this piece. There was it was a it was a very stunning piece of writing, and also the the pictures. I, I suppose did speak a thousand words. There's just a general <laughs> sense in that article that the the political class is failing, um, and really, I suppose. Put some context on it for our listeners today, can you just tell us and talk us through the type of problems that the city of San Francisco is currently trying to deal with
0: yeah sure and and i'll I'll just mention the pictures because i I agree with you they were they were great, but they got a lot of attention so um we got one of our artists to um, mock up some pictures of what San Francisco might look like in a kind of Last of Us post-apocalyptic scenario. Mm. Um, so pictures of the Transamerica Pyramid covered in you know vines and that sort of thing. And um, lots of people didn't realise they were illustrations mm. and we got lots of emails from people asking if that was really what San Francisco looked like, which was... Uh, amusing but um also slightly worrying. Um but yes, so there are there are obviously uh issues here at the moment and it has felt like in the last few months that um everything's just kind of coming together and there's been this drip 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 of of issues and now suddenly people are People are kind of angry that a lot of um, the things that you see on the streets here have been allowed to to kind of fester. We're obviously significantly out of the pandemic now. And and a lot of the um, homelessness and drugs issues that were kind of exacerbated during the pandemic and have been getting worse for years now just sort of feel for people living here um, and worse than ever. So, uh Probably the biggest issue and, and what we sort of focused on at the beginning of our article was the fentanyl crisis so San Francisco has the second worst rate of drugs death of drug deaths in uh, in the whole of the US and more people here have died of fentanyl overdoses um since the covid pandemic started than of covid which speaks to two things and it speaks to the ability of the city uh To actually run a successful um pandemic response, and also quite how bad it's it's like its response to the drugs crisis has been um and it's just become a regular site now. Um, to see people openly using drugs in the streets, mm. um, typically it's clustered to certain parts of of downtown. But these aren't um, areas that are kind of on the fringes. These are parts of San Francisco where uh, people come through to go to work, where people live, um, and it's really just become quite shocking. Uh, one person I spoke to for the article was the father of a 10-month-old little boy who had accidentally ingested fentanyl um, at the end of last year when he was at a park with his nanny. Uh, The boy had um, just kind of randomly suddenly gone gone unconscious, turned blue, stopped breathing, and paramedics ended up with not really knowing what else to do, administered him Narcan, which is uh, o- uh, reverses um, opioid overdoses. And he woke up, he uh, went to hospital, he was found to have, have ingested fentanyl. And it just kind of, it, you know, it was a freak accident, mm. but it just spoke to a lot of people f- about the kind of how bad the drugs issue has become here and this sense of sort of unsafety that it's brought.
1: Yeah, there's so many um, lessons in that little story about Senna Matkovic who I think is perfectly fine now but it was the knowledge Mm -hmm. of the emergency workers just to act on that immediately. Mm -hmm. It was also the juxtaposition of the very wealthy people who were living in San Francisco and somehow wandering into this and that's creating its own sort of news dynamic because it's the juxtaposition of those two worlds. But can I just... um? ask you a little bit about um, fentanyl because luckily, for now at least anyway, it's not something that has a huge presence either here in Ireland but I'd imagine as everything what's over there eventually comes over here. We just talked to me about the, the drug itself. It's manufactured it seems to be very cheap and um, highly addictive. Can you just give us a little sense mm-hmm. of what that drug is and,
0: and, and how much it costs and how it's made? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's a synthetic opioid um it really has become a, a kind of crisis uh, level epidemic fentanyl use across the us not just in in san francisco um it's it's super cheap super potent um a, a hit so when we were reporting the piece we spoke to a lot of um homeless people who are uh who are addicted to the drug and a lot of um people who are really struggling with with addiction and they all kind of said the same thing, which is that it's just become completely just ubiquitous across, mm. across San Francisco. So it's about $8 for a hit. Um, it It's really quick working. It only lasts about 30 minutes. And then the withdrawals last two or three hours. And, The fact that you can kind of buy one hit for $8 kind of perpetuates a lot of the other problems that San Francisco is seeing at the moment. So there's this hollowing out of of downtown. So recently, a lot of big chain stores um, have closed down some of their their footprints in san francisco nordstrom the big uh, luxury department store it said a few weeks ago that it was going to uh, just leave san francisco part of that obviously is the lack of footfall that you know people do more online shopping etc but another part of it and, and the reason they're all more um, kind of like keen to cite is the a big rise in in violent shoplifting mm. in the city, because there is this sense that you can uh, shoplift, you can do petty theft. The chances of getting prosecuted are very low, uh, mistakes are very low. And then people kind of go out onto the streets outside of these shops and sell the things that they've stolen. So it's really common to walk around parts of San Francisco and see people just kind of selling, you know, bottles of shampoo and um, soap and things on the street. And then you go into the shops and everything's sort of behind locked uh, plastic cabinets because that shops are kind of desperately trying to get to grips with this shoplifting problem. Mm. What's really,
1: I suppose, surprising as well when you read the piece is that this is a city that's also home to four of the ten most valuable companies in the world. There's a huge disconnect between the wealthy and and the, the, the people who are living in the city dealing with their own crime, not just violent crime on wealthy people, but it was all sort of... Um, I suppose co- co- again come to a head in a new sense with the um, the murder of that cash app founder uh, Bob Lee mm-hmm. a number of weeks ago, which was a shocking uh, piece of, I suppose you know, violent crime that just kind of hit the headlines everywhere. Many asking that was it so prevalent in the news and got so much attention just because he's a he's a white man.
0: Mm, yeah. I mean. the that's one of the craziest sort of things about living here, that San Francisco is still one of the wealthiest cities uh in America. I mean, some some of the most the, the wealthiest billionaires in the world, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, these guys all live in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And um, you know, as you said, it's home to some of the wealthiest companies in the world, um, Facebook, Google twitter etc so to have this massive kind of gulf um in income inequality and the rates of poverty and homelessness that we do it kind of there's a sense of frustration that the issues have, have been allowed to become so bad and also a sense of of um kind of this like antagonism because mm. Uh, San Francisco doesn't have a resources issue. It has a really big budget to kind of fix some of these issues. There's a lot of money in the city. A lot of people are very wealthy. Um, uh, So there's a sense that there should be... um, that yeah that something just isn't working to kind of fix some of these issues um so yeah the bob lee uh, murder was really shocking because he was um he used to live in san francisco he doesn't anymore but he was back visiting and he was um murdered late at night in a kind of nice area very near downtown and immediately when the news broke about this this murder Everyone just just jumped on it. So there was mm. this, you know, people from tech billionaires. Elon Musk was tweeting about it. People it made headlines all over the world because it it kind of tapped into this sense that there was this like pervasive lawlessness in mm. San Francisco and that it had become an unsafe place to be. And it tapped into some of these issues about. You know, he was a a kind of wealthy, successful tech executive, and um, now he's fallen victim to this crime on the streets of San Francisco. So it tapped into a lot of people's fears about what's happened in the city but actually what then transpired was that he hadn't you know as lots of people had assumed he hadn't been killed in, in kind of some unprovoked attack mm. by you know a fentanyl addict or a homeless person he had been killed by someone known to him an acquaintance a- allegedly we don't you know we're still waiting for the trial um but someone's been arrested who also worked in tech and you know was it was personally known to him um But what that did, that whole narrative, it was just so interesting to see it play out because people were so quick to assume so many um, things about the situation. There's been a couple of other similar cases. Mm. And for me, that kind of narrative problem um, is as damaging as as any of the kind of real issues because it really, you know, a lot of San Francisco's GDP comes from... um, after all that the tech industries comes from tourism and it just isn't good you know whether the the level of safety here is as bad as, as some of these stories have made it have made it seem and i live here i do i really like living here um you don't you don't walk around in a constant feeling of of uh, being on edge and feeling like it's unsafe. But to see these headlines around the world and to see how people think of the city, it's it's yeah, it definitely has this perception issue now.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, perception can can eventually become the reality. But can I just draw your attention to something you mentioned or a phrase you used uh, in your article? Was you called uh, San Francisco a sanctuary city? Referring back to the nineteen seventies when the children of flower power would have flocked to the city because of its counterculture plus the progressive politics. It just sounds like when you're talking there, um budget isn't an issue, money isn't and resources isn't an issue, the wealthy are there, tech is there. Did they ever actually get their arms around the problem of that, you know, people flocking to there for cheap drugs and that kind of free spirit. Like, was there a period of time where the the city of San Francisco was working well?
0: That kind of um, feeling that San Francisco has always embraced sort of the counterculture, it's been a place for liberal-minded people and um, it's progressive. That's something that... Uh, San Francisco has always been very proud of and the people that live here have always um, been been proud of and has been considered, you know, despite some of the issues that it has brought over the last however many decades, has been um, something that people like in the city. And um, you know, it's like it's the, as you said, flower power kids and mu- musicians, and there's the beat poets, and you know, it's responsible for so much of the kind of vibrancy and the, um, yeah, the the kind of art and literature that that pe- that means San Francisco is so well known. But it's kind of become so, so. All of that, a lot of that feeling still exists, but also the person who I was speaking to who used this phrase, "sanctuary city." Part of what he was referring to were some kind of newer policies that mm. make San Francisco attractive to people who um, kind of live on the fringes or might be homeless in, in say, more pov- like more poverty-stricken parts of America. Um, so California in 2014, as a state, downgraded uh, the penalties for a lot of. Low-level um, crimes to do with drug possession, petty theft, uh, down from fel- felonies to misdemeanors, which kind of took away a lot of the risk of of being arrested if you were, mm. you know, doing kind of low-level shoplifting, using drugs in public, um, and so a lot of people came to California because of that. So it just it, it means arrest. You know, police are less incentivized to make arrests. Um, more generally and and so you can kind of come to california and use drugs and buy drugs and live on the streets and the weather's good um with just uh, in a kind of way that means you're less likely to be picked on by the police Mm. and then san francisco because it does have this big budget and because it has been trying to fight um drug use and and solve homelessness for so long it does have uh shelter programs it has lots of charities and churches offering free food and clothes and it's tried lots of different things it's had harm reduction centers uh needles needle exchange sites like safe injecting sites it's tried all this stuff so things were always popping up to kind of help homeless people people living on the streets etc um and uh, so people come because that's on offer, mm. and in a way, you're kind of proud that San Francisco is able to offer some of this stuff. But it does have the negative consequence of people um, coming here who weren't born in the city uh, from other parts of the country because it's all it's all on offer. And some of the homeless people I spoke to who have either lived here for you know 30 years or who were born in the city do they think it's a problem and they kind of are uh fed up with a sort of influx of people um who are who are getting the benefits of some of this stuff but i don't think there's ever been an era where san francisco you know suddenly had the kind of magic um magic solution to some of these issues and lots of um mayors previous mayors in the city have tried weird and wonderful um, come up with weird and wonderful things to to fix homelessness there was there was one mayor in the 80s who wanted to get a um a, a an old aircraft carrier u.s military aircraft carrier and kind of anchor it in the bay and and all the homeless people could live on there so they've they've come up with these sorts of weird and wonderful ideas but the issue is that you know the pandemic has has made this has made a lot of social issues in, yeah. in america worse but the you know the drugs are worse than ever the homeless rates of homelessness are worse than ever mental untreated mental illness is now a is now a you know a growing a problem that's getting worse so this kind of confluence of issues is is making the situation particularly bad
1: Yeah, I should point out that there are lots of positive things happening, particularly under Mayor Breed's plans, which I had hoped to go into today. But unfortunately, time has run out on us. But can I say, Tabby Kinder from the Financial Times, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much. Well that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings we're always available as a podcast for us on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week Jack Dorsey has a new platform it's called Blue Sky and if you want to hear all about it you can tune in next week and also get in contact with us about that or any item on today's programme on Taking Stock at newstalk.com My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock John Fardy with thanks also to Simon Keane and Hugh Gouda Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with all your Sunday newspapers and lots more on the record. But for now that's Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.